Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm very excited to have um, my superstar and friend, Dr. Sue Kay, on the show today again. Sue is the CEO of Queensland AI Hub, Chair of Robotics Australia Network, Adjunct Professor of Faculty of Engineering, School of Electrical Engineering and Robotics at QUT. Sue, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, no, thank you, Nikki. Sue was my very first guest on this podcast and instrumental in me starting it. I phoned Sue and told her what I was planning and her words were, go for it. Sue, I don't know if you remember that day. (laughs) No, that sounds like something I would say. (laughs) Yes, definitely it was. So (laughs) suffice to say that I still phone Sue to bounce ideas off and I hope all the listeners out there Uh, my wish for you is that you've got someone in your life that you can phone and you can bounce ideas and thoughts off. So, Sue, since we last spoke, you've taken on the role as the CEO of Queensland AI Hub. Tell us more about the role and what you're responsible for. Yes, well, I took on this role because I think that in Australia, we're at a critical juncture and I see artificial intelligence as being, uh, the you know, broadly crossing over, you know, into robotics, you know, which is, uh, you know, where we first met and, and obviously the focus of this podcast. And what's happening in other parts of the world is there's being a huge amount of investment in artificial intelligence, which is having an influence on robotics. And my concern is that in Australia, we're really just not keeping up with the pace. And so to my mind, to improve things for um, robotics in Australia, we really need to be looking at that bigger picture. And for me, the role with Queensland AI Hub was an opportunity to actually try and make a difference and see if we can find ways that Australia can benefit from the remarkable talent and technologies in artificial intelligence and in particular robotics that we are currently already developing developing and actually make sure that we don't lose them overseas and further that we actually are able to um, educate and encourage all of Australian society to take advantage of the opportunities that we have in artificial intelligence and to not be afraid to have an opinion about the use of these technologies and you know to make it clear when people feel uncomfortable. I think one of the greatest challenges that we have is that the, the, the term itself, artificial intelligence, is not very accessible and people can often feel fear uh, just at the very mention of that term. And yet, you know, unfortunately, it is the sort of common catch-all terminology that's used around the traps at the moment. And what it can do is it can, I guess, alienate people from feeling that they can have an opinion about it because they think, oh, I don't know anything about this. It's just all scary and I don't really know what to do. And I think that by telling a lot of the stories about the technologies that we're currently developing here and and how they're being applied, because, you know, as you know, I'm an optimist and and where I see the big benefits of robotics and artificial intelligence in Australia is, is this ability to augment human potential and be able to help us solve challenges that we've never been able to solve before. Once people understand how these technologies can be applied, I think it doesn't matter if you don't understand the actual science behind it. It's about understanding what it means and what a difference it's making in your world and whether you feel comfortable with that. So really, um, at the end of the day, I'd like to see everyone empowered to have an opinion about artificial intelligence and how it's used. But to get to that point, I guess we need to be having 
really raising the profile of the type of work that's already happening here in Australia so people understand that it's not just some foreign concept that, you know, is being, uh, you know, put on us by, you know, the the global tech companies, we're actually developing a lot of this technology ourselves and to really good effect. So it's helping in all sorts of areas, saving the environment, improving food production, um, making our hospitals more efficient and safer for healthcare professionals and for patients. Um, you know, the, the, the different areas where artificial intelligence and robotics can be applied, um, you know, knows no boundary, really. It's, a, it's applicable across all sectors. So for me, this was, a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to essentially put my money where my mouth is. Mm-hmm. And instead of just, I guess, complaining from the sidelines and going, not enough's happening, we need to be doing more, um, it was my opportunity to actually get on the front foot and, and try and make that happen. And great respect to you because you've actually started this office from scratch during COVID. How did that all go for you? Well, I guess it is fortunate that people have been so adaptable in terms of taking on video conferencing uh, facilities. Sometimes it's been a bit difficult. There are a lot of physical manifestations of artificial intelligence, you know, particularly robotics, that it would be wonderful to be able to invite people into our space and be able to show them. And, you know, in fact, we have this wonderful space just, you know, outside the uh, office that I'm in at the moment where, you know, we can bring trade delegations in and, you know, people from different areas who are just curious about artificial intelligence and really show them hands-on material about what it means for their industry or just for their life in general and uh, you know unfortunately that's not getting a lot of use yet Uh, but I think you know as we progress out of the pandemic that was that's certainly an important element Um, and meanwhile we've just had to find ways that we can through videos and through meetings and webinars try and have the same engagement with people yeah Speaking of the pandemic, um, you and I had a brief discussion before we, we started the podcast. And for our listeners out there, um, stay stay courageous and, and just remember all bad things do eventually end. We will get through this and life will go on in some way or another. So um, if anyone's not having a great day out there, just hang tight. We will get through this. Sue, Australia and our policy development, I'm touching on it. I know Queensland in terms of robotics, I've always said, I think I should move to Queensland because the state just seems to embrace the sort of technology. Um, I don't know if it's just more um, in your face and they're just more vocal about it than other states. But in terms of AI policy across Australia, where are we? Australia is one of the only countries in the world not to have a national AI strategy. And I think that's a shame because by having a strategy, it's a way to declare to the rest of the world what our ambition is. And I think we can afford to be quite ambitious. And in some respects, it's dangerous for us not to be ambitious because the rest of the world isn't going to wait for us to catch up. And you know, as I mentioned right at the beginning, we have an abundance of talent and technologies in this area that we could be making, uh, taking advantage of. The reason that it's important, um, and it's not that there is nothing happening in the AI policy space. Uh, at the last federal budget, the Australian government released $58 million towards the Australia AI Action Plan that they developed. But to my mind, that really pales in comparison to the billions of dollars that we know governments in other parts of the world, including in countries far smaller than Australia, 
are investing in artificial intelligence. And that's something that we really just have to keep an eye on. I mean, there's, we can do as much as we can do with the, the limited um, funding that is available at the moment, but it is uh, going to start to um, bite, I guess, when we uh, it's a global market for t- these talent and technologies. And the risk for us is that if we're not seen as serious investors in this space, then what are the reasons that people would choose to stay here? You know, the opportunities that are emerging thanks to these, you know, national artificial intelligence strategies that have very clear ambitions and targets are very hard to match. Why do you think there's such a, I mean, we know the adoption rate of robotics in Australia isn't great. Do you think this ties in, there's a direct correlation then falling with AI that like this just, it's just like a broad spectrum of, we just don't want to know about this? I think at its heart, we haven't been able to successfully make the argument about the economic and social benefits of creating technology in Australia. I think it's a broader issue than just robotics or artificial intelligence. So at the moment, as far as I can tell, our economic policy is driven by the idea that it doesn't matter where we get our technology from. Now, we have invested in cybersecurity. Uh, because everyone appreciates that it's not good if all of our IT systems can be hacked into by uh, other countries. However, you know, cybersecurity is really the moat that you build to protect your crown jewels, and your crown jewels should be the technology that you're creating. So we're investing in the moat, but we're not investing in the crown jewels. And I think that's fundamentally dangerous because we need to have sovereign capability in the development of these technologies. Things like robotics and sensing systems are critical in the Internet of Things, critical for our um, for controlling a lot of our critical infrastructure. So, you know, you don't have a water utility or an energy plant that doesn't rely on these systems in some way, shape or form. At the moment, the way that they protect those is to try and make sure they're on their own secure network that doesn't communicate with the outside network, but that is not going to protect you from, you know, physical disruptions, you know, like um, electromagnetic pulses, things like that. It's not going to protect you from hardware trojans. So if you can't buy the infrastructure that you need to um, build those assets here in Australia, then we are at risk. So I really am not sure I understand how we can't really assess the economic benefits of not only being the adopters of technology, but also being the creators of that technology, because there must be a multiplying effect. So yes, we can buy our robots from overseas and it's great. It can help efficiency in, you know, for example, our manufacturing plants. How much extra uplift would we get if we were building those robots here in Australia or building that artificial intelligence technology? And that is the missing ingredient. I think we really need to sit down and have a good think about what that that what those calculations need to be. And I'm not sure that anyone in the world is doing this particularly well, but what I do know is that you just have to follow the money. If you look at countries like China or if you look at countries like the U.S., They are investing billions of dollars to make sure they have sovereign capability in technology development. No, I was just just about to say, and I I think with the the advent of the pandemic, everything's been pushed even further back into the background. 
Yeah, that's right. But I think that's really just the, the key message that I think we need everyone to think about. What does it mean if Australia ends up being a country that purchases all of its technology? It's like being a nation of renters. We won't be owning our own homes. We will be at the mercy of everyone else. And not only are we at the mercy and having to pay for these technologies, which we are more than capable of, and we know as because we're currently doing it, we are producing these technologies at the moment, but we're not really supporting that industry, right? And that's where eventually we will start to, you know, feel the pain. Um, but what is it if we do resign ourselves to being reliant on other countries? We're not just reliant on giving them money. We then start to get tied in and, you know, potentially have to take on technologies that actually are not a good cultural fit here in Australia because we have no control over how they're created. What do you think it's going to take to change this environment, Sue? I mean, you're one of the you're one of the thought leaders in the space now, uh, Professor Toby Walsh. There are many of you, as you mentioned, like we're more than capable of, of handling this in Australia. What What do you think it's going to take? Is it like a a ground up movement to go? Listen, um, policymakers, you need to start changing your ideas here. I think we should continue to try and influence policy wherever possible. But I think in this instance, we probably need for the industry itself to step up. I mean, you know, there's always going to be a balance between, um, you know, government and industry having to step up to see these changes take effect. And when it's not happening in one area, then the other area really needs to step up. So I think at the moment we really need for, you know, our, our major industry players to have a think about what they can be doing to help support the, you know, sovereign supply chain and technology into their businesses. Maybe an initiative like for the Queensland AHA, because you're all like a formal um, uh, institution, there's maybe have a think tank and get all these these brains together over a weekend, even if it's via Zoom or something. I mean, someone needs to just, someone needs to do it. You see the way I'm giving you work to do? Yeah, <laughs> it's not as though your your Okay, forget I said that. No, don't forget I said it. I think you'd be brilliant at doing it. Speaking of robotics, um, you're still the chair of the uh, Robotics Australia Network. Uh, What is this organisation about and what's its main objectives? Yeah, so we only launched Robotics Australia mid last year, again, during COVID, not ideal. Uh, But the whole idea behind it was in building off the momentum that came about from the development of Australia's first robotics roadmap to try and bring, I guess, what is currently a fairly immature and fragmented industry together and to ensure that robotics in Australia has a voice. Um, and so that's how Robotics Australia started, but we are a team of volunteers. So, you know, it's been um, trying to get everything operationalized has been challenging. One of the things that we have been doing is developing a second edition of that robotics roadmap, which we hope to release in the next month. And really what that is, it's um, <laughs> this is going to sound a bit corny, but it's almost, a, a you know, it's a kind of, a, a, it's almost a bit of a love story, really, <laughs> in as much as, We try and collect as many case studies as we can about some of the fantastic work that's happening here in Australia as part of developing that argument to demonstrate that 
we are actually really good at doing some of this work and we just need that little bit of, um, you know, magic sparkle dust, you know, I guess a bit more government support, a bit more support from industry to really make this a sustainable industry in Australia. And more broadly, I'd say the same applies to artificial intelligence. Um, and so, yes, that's uh, Robotics Australia. It's really about being the voice for robotics in Australia, um, joining up and making that fragmented industry uh, work in a more collaborative manner um, and taking up opportunities as they arise. So, you know, we're looking at at the moment, you know, the modern manufacturing initiative and, and how we might be able to leverage off that and, and really how we can then leverage off the work that we're doing in the roadmap and mapping out Australia's robotics capability to, uh, I guess, take our position on the world stage and, and let everyone know that we have this strong capability here and, and here are some of the ways that we can benefit all Australians from, from developing this technology. Listen, I think it was a brilliant piece of work and um, I can't wait for the second edition. And for our listeners out there, please do check out the Robotics Australia Network website. Um, You can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, I believe Dr. Nathan Kirshner, who's also one of on the board there, he's also got a podcast. So listen to him and check out who he's speaking to. He's got a completely different audience to mine, but well worth listening. I've listened to some of his chats and um, so subscribe to that as well. Um, there's a like a membership uh, sign up there, Sue. Um, what what are you doing with like the funds that if people are paying funds, what do you do with the money? Yeah, so at the moment we're uh, directing a lot of that fun, those funds into building a robotics venture factory. So this is a, well, first we're looking for funding through the um, Manufacturing Modernisation Initiative, but we also have a couple of other funding streams that we're looking at, and it's purely to uh, help support robotics companies to either, you know, um, start to mature or to develop new product lines and actually look at helping them become truly global in nature and be exporting their uh, products and, and growing so that we can have, you know, I guess, um, you know, not just a, a collection of, of, of small to medium-sized businesses, but actually start to grow some of these robotics companies into, into truly global players. So that's one of the things. Obviously, the roadmap has been being, you know, done in volunteer time. That occupies a lot of my weekends. Um, so, you know, at, at, at its core, we also just need some operational funds so that we can have a Robotics Australia network. Yeah, just just admin staff helping, not even admin, just people helping, and that they're not you're not expecting them. There does come a fine line of the volunteer, like I'm, you know, how much time can you volunteer? And you're involved in a lot of volunteer activities yourself. Another great thing that came out of COVID last year was the Women in AI Awards for Australia and New Zealand, and Andra Miller from Jewel Rock was spearheaded this, and um, Women in AI. Uh, you were a judge on the panel there. Tell us about it. I'm I'm so interested. How many how many uh, applications did you get? Or entries? What do you call it? Applications or 
Well, I served a purely um, um, honorary role in as much as I didn't actually judge. I was an advisor for the awards. And that meant that I just had to turn up at the awards ceremony and, and make a speech, which was awesome. So I'd like to be able to tell you a bit more about the judging details. What I did have involvement with is that Women in AI is an international movement. And um, Beth Carey uh, is the person who introduced it here into Australia and New Zealand. And the idea is to connect all of the women in artificial intelligence and robotics into this wider international network to get support, but also so that we can start delivering some of the programs that women in AI have here in Australia, which benefit you know, a whole range of, of people. And the idea about behind the Women in AI Awards is really raising the profile. Um, and that's something that's very close to my heart because, as you know, um, you know, I was successful in bringing the world's largest um, technology conference for women, uh, the Grace Hopper Celebration to Australia in 2019. And the Women in AI Awards and the Grace Hopper Celebration have in common that they're really about raising the profile of the women in the technology industry, because too often we hear excuses for why there are so few women in technology or in artificial intelligence which are not necessarily backed up by facts. And when you have an um, award ceremony such as the Women in AI Awards, what it does is it really profiles that actually there are some really talented people in this space. So when people say they can't find women to be on panels, they can't find women to employ because there are no technical specialists in this area, they only have to go to something like the Women in AI Awards or something like the Grace Hopper Celebration to discover that that's not really true. Yes, there are a smaller proportion of women who are going into those technical fields, but it's not like they don't exist. And it's not like when they do exist, they're not doing anything. They're actually doing amazing things and people should be paying more attention to that. So I was very proud to be involved in the first lot of these Women in AI Awards and a very strong supporter of the next event. Yeah, that's going to be on the 31st of March um, next year, and it's going to be in Melbourne, and I'm sincerely hoping that we could be there in person, and I will just be attending as a guest there, so I am looking forward to seeing you in person, because I know you won't come down here now, it's far too cold for you. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of advisors, you're also a technical advisor to the Australian Space Agency. What's happening in the space in Australia? Oh, well, the Australian Space Agency have identified a number of areas where they think Australia can have an impact in terms of um, developing our space industry. And one of those areas is in robotics. And so I was on an advisory committee around the development of the Australian Space Agency's robotics roadmap, uh, which I'm not 100% sure when it's going to be released, but it's in the pipeline and very much looking forward to seeing the finished product. So it's fantastic to see the space agency taking this on. It is really a clear area where Australia has an advantage over many other nations because our specialty tends to be in field robotics, which is very readily applied to space. Um, and, yeah, there's a number of areas of crossover. And, um, you know, I guess the space agency is trying to encourage companies that might be in the... Uh, already supplying into resources or aerospace or defence to consider how they might be able to repurpose their platforms for use in space. Um, and I know Adelaide's quite a, um, it's Adelaide's the go-to place, if you want to call it that, like robotics, in my opinion, is Queensland. I think the Space Hub is really in Adelaide where a lot has been done there. 
Yes. So, um, speaking of COVID, I've, I've read some papers on this that, um, uh, especially women in STEM, it's really hit us hard. Um, there's with some numbers and figures touted about it's it's actually hit women harder because most of a lot of them are part-time workers in the STEM field. A lot of papers haven't been um, finished or even attempted during COVID because women have reverted to the primary caregivers. Um, I mean, this is just a fact of life that someone has to do it. And But um, what are your opinions on um, a, how bad has it actually impacted us and going forward? How are we going to get makeup for lost ground here? I wouldn't know an actual figure to put on how badly it has uh, impacted us. In fact, we might not really see the results of that for a few years because, I mean, I think one statistic that's always been a bit disturbing is that uh, only 15% of of people enrolling in undergraduate engineering degrees are women and that has been pretty steady for 10 years so we're not really finding a way to make that a more um, attractive profession for women despite all of the STEM initiatives that have been um, uh, that have been developed and unfortunately COVID has really seen women's rights in general take a big hit mm. um, and STEM is really just women in STEM is really just reflecting that overall hit you know the increased levels of domestic violence the the fact that women um, you know have often had to have to been the ones to give up work um, to, um, you know, be able to do the homeschooling required during school shutdowns. I mean, all backwards steps, really, for, for women's rights. Um, what can we do to make an improvement? Someone said something interesting the other day. They said, why are we always talking about encouraging women into STEM and we're not talking about um, encouraging misogynists out of STEM? Um, <laughs> That's a very good question, Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think when you think about it, we still have not succeeded in making STEM professions attractive to women. And we still continue to often use the word choice when we talk about how uh, girls in school choose their subjects. And, you know, people seem to think that we're somehow infringing on people's choice if we encourage girls to do STEM or, uh, you know, um, encourage boys to do some of the, the subjects that they are traditionally, um, you know, have low numbers in, you know, such as going into teaching or nursing or, um, you know, uh, food, um, clothing, design, those sort of areas. I mean, I really think we just need to find a way that we can have a more balanced approach all around where, you know, it's acceptable for women to be seen to be having careers in what were male-dominated industries, and it's acceptable for men to have careers in what have traditionally been female industries. I just think we have to work a lot harder in that. I saw a recent initiative where people were encouraging parents to get involved in helping their children draw a scientist, because because that's, I guess, one of the, you know, um, exercises that's commonly quoted to show that we're not really making a big difference that when you ask children quite young children to draw a scientist they'll typically draw a man often they'll look like Einstein with the crazy hair and the white lab coat but very rarely do they draw a woman 
And so very early on, people get this sense of this is a career for my gender and this is not a career for my gender. And as I said, it equally impacts on boys. So um, I think, right, we, we just need to work harder and harder on on trying to break down those barriers and I guess check ourselves when we think when our unconscious biases start to show you know for example when you you know maybe you get surprised if you see a female firefighter you know you really need to check yourself and go why am I surprised it's completely acceptable for there to be women in this occupation but I think unfortunately our children don't get that message because they just see um, you know, the um, the status quo and, and people don't think to change it. Well, Barbie doll has now introduced a range of um, dolls that depict exactly what you've been speaking about. So police women, firefighting women, fire scientists or scientists as Barbie dolls. And, um, you know, my sister's just retired. She retired um, as vice principal from a high school and then started a gardening business in South Africa. And then a school phoned and said their teacher um, in Afrikaans, unfortunately, got COVID and can my sister come and, and relieve? And um, my sister is now a primary school teacher and they've offered her a full-time job. And, of course, all her siblings are ragging her because, you know, she's supposed to have retired and everything. And she said something that stuck with me and she said, these little ones they're so precious this is where we get them and and yeah. and that's where i think maybe in australia um maybe that's where we can have some improvement is in the primary school level where we we need to get in earlier it's you know it's a little bit late in the stage when kids are in high school because they've already started shaping and forming their opinions it's this crucial primary school where every single class should have photos of all the genders, boys baking, women being firefighters, because either way, it's a skill that they're learning. And that's what we we want strong, skilled citizens in Australia. Yeah. And I think, you know, Finland is a good example of um, a society that has tried very hard to make that, that all of those primary levels for everything to be very gender neutral, because mm. it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what gender you are, but, you know, we reinforce that to children all the time uh, and often we probably don't even realise that we're doing it. Yeah, I think think what the reinforcement would be is um, regardless of your sex, you want skills because skills gives you confidence to go and do things and once you learn how to do a skill, um, nothing's actually too hard for you because you know you can go and research it, you can find out what you want to do and you're a skill-based individual and it's, you know, that makes all the difference for you to suddenly later in life go and choose a completely different career because you go, well, this is a skill that I'm going to learn and I know I just have to plug away at it. Mm, that's right. So now COVID's had an impact on us all and I don't want to dwell on it uh, too much, but like what have been like personal challenges for you? Have, you, have there been good things out of COVID for you? Hmm. I guess it has meant less travel. Uh, and so in some respects that has been a little bit less uh, stressful but I guess the trade-off has been that there's you know often seems to be never-ending you know (laughs) sometimes eight hours straight of you know running from Zoom meeting well not even running sitting from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting where you know often you don't even remember to stand up Um, or you don't have time to stand up because you're straight on to a call with someone else and you know you're visible Mm. So um, has it, yeah, 
professionally, it probably has made it a bit harder to have those connections with people in other states and certainly overseas. Um, Personally, I mean, you know, like many others, I've had children who have, uh, you know, at different points in time been at home and trying to homeschool. And when you're working full time and you can't devote that time and attention to them, it's really hard. Um, yeah. You know, to some expect, some extent, you kind of have to just uh, trust that things will be okay because you can't be micromanaging that aspect of their lives. And I think certainly I have a lot of concerns over, you know, the the levels of mental illness that are, are prevalent in society at the moment. And particularly, I feel for our teenagers. My daughter's in year twelve. You know, it's a very tough year to you know, have all of these disruptions and changes to plans. Um, I think it's hard for people to to cope with that. I mean, for me, it's also probably, uh, you know, increased some obsessive behaviours. So I get quite cranky if I don't get to do my exercise. (laughs) There are, you know, certain crutches that I, I have that help me get through the day. And if I don't have those crutches, I think I've, I've, since COVID, I feel it a lot more, if that makes sense. Mm. And I guess that just means that in general, I know I'm operating at a higher level of stress. Yeah. Than I would normally um, and you know and then I think that for everyone that's a challenge because then you have to think of well what's you've probably already got strategies in place that help you get through normal stress well what's the extra strategies that you need in place to get through COVID stress yeah um, I, I think you're right I think the mental um, the mental health of our youngsters I mean I feel for your daughter in year 12 uh I know you're a 12 student in Melbourne and it's on, off, on, off. I just don't know how she's navigating this year. So on the one hand, you know, you could go, well, it's okay because they're at home, but we all know teenagers, they, they pack animals. They love their friends. They have to have friends around them. Otherwise, they, they also go off the path a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's hard because, you know, you're you're dealing with the impacts on yourself, but then you know, there are obvious impacts on, you know, your family members and then there's impacts on your friends and, you know, you can't be there to support everybody and make sure that you're healthy as well. It just puts that extra stress on everything. And I I understand that there's been a huge increase in, which is in some ways a good thing. There's been a huge increase in the number of people accessing mental health services. Uh, But, you know, there's probably still a lot of people who, who aren't, in a position or who who are not accessing those services for for whatever reason and and I think we will feel the we won't really see the impact of that you know uh, immediately I think you know slowly over the next few years that'll probably um, we'll see what that has meant for people and whether there's much higher levels of anxiety Um, yeah it's just going to be a strange new normal I think in the future yeah I agree with you and I think um you know, I was chatting with my son, who is a student at Melbourne Uni, on, um, and I, I think the pervasive, um, just sort of, especially in Melbourne at the moment, because we're in lockdown number whatever we are, and, you know, like, it's just that energy of, like, is there's no end to this, but, you know, it will end eventually, and I said to him, you have to find something in your day that's good for you, you know, focus on it, go out of your way, go and have a nice meal, go and have a nice cup of coffee, whatever it is. And also to the audience out there, the same to you, whatever, just find something that you enjoy and you like doing because, um, you know, we will get through this eventually. It's just, it's pretty tough just going through it. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's important that people find ways and I guess are mindful that it is having an impact and that you need to think of things that you can be proactively doing to, to minimize that. Yeah, I read an initiative or someone think put something on Twitter of reach out to five friends. Like five is a bit much for me. I think I could reach out to two because, you know, if you're reaching out to two and they're already a little bit fragile, I think five would spin me out. But that's just me personally because, you know, you're, you, everyone's got limited resources at the moment. Actually, I'll tell you my most recent strategy and my strategy has changed through COVID. So, you know, when COVID first hit, I thought, fantastic, this is a great opportunity to uh, do more jigsaw puzzles. I remember that, yes. I remember that. (laughs) I went through my jigsaw puzzle phase and that was quite good. Um, And then, um, but more recently what I've found works very well is um, I have uh, started watching Asian TV series with uh, the subtitles. Yeah. So because what it does is because I don't understand, unfortunately I'm quite, you know, um, uh, handicapped by only knowing one language, English. Yeah. And so when I watch um, something in a foreign language, I have to concentrate on the subtitles. Yeah. Whereas if I watch something in English, my mind will wander. And so to really turn off, that's actually my tip at the moment. I find something that I can't not, my mind can't wander because I'm having to concentrate. Yeah. And listen, what's your phone strategy? Like I know, um, you know, in your in your display on your email signature you, you work at different hours because it suits you and that that's around your home life and everything and um you know I've actually found I've got quite addicted to my 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 phone and I, I yesterday I had a no phone day like I just literally for the whole day I didn't touch and I felt so much better I have to say that's a great idea yeah, yeah. like you just no phones like whatever you yeah. do whatever idea you think you'll have to research on Monday but mm-hmm. one day a week no phones yeah yeah so so um this is you in the second half so we've reached the over 50 um episodes of let's talk robotics and um you're going to be episode 52 so absolutely delighted to have you on here i know in the next uh whatever 104 where we are there'll be something else that you're doing that's spectacular that i'm going to have you back on the show for any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with well, I think, yeah, thanks to all of Nikki's listeners for coming on this journey. And Nikki has done a fabulous job of actually profiling some of the interesting personalities that are in the robotics space here in Australia. And the fact that you've gotten, you know, we're almost up to 30, 52 episodes just shows what a depth of talent we do have. And I would encourage everyone to just listen out for those stories of Australian innovation and get behind them, make sure people know about them. And look, really, if you're if you're up for it, um, I really need some more people who are being activists about the need for us to be uh, have sovereign capability in the development of technology, particularly in robotics and artificial intelligence. <clears throat> so listening to Nikki's podcast is a good entry point for that. And, uh, you know, there are more things that you can do if, you, if you're motivated. Uh, and it's really just about telling that story, letting people know that we're good at this stuff. Um, there are some amazing stories out there. There really are some incredible people and, um, and applications of robotics technology in, happening right here in Australia that we should be very proud of. 
I couldn't agree with you more, Sue. You know, like, and just reflecting on uh, people that I've had the absolute privilege of speaking with, or two, like they just—they're absolutely amazing people, and they're all very nice, and uh, they all want to hear from you, the listeners. So, Sue, is it okay if I put your new email address down in the show notes? Sure thing. Okay, so um, Sue, thanks so much for joining me. It's, as always, an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I love our time together. It's always very limited because you're so hectically busy, but um, I look forward again, and we'll catch up soon after the podcast anyway. And to our audience, join me next week for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Mm -hmm.